Welcome to AOL. Welcome to AOL Underground. Would you please state your handle in the years you were active on AOL? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, Keeb. I was active from early 90s to probably just after 2000 or so. Nice. When did you first use a computer? Probably five. Uh, around there, I was on a Tandy 386 that was running DOS, playing games like golf and Reader Rabbit. Yeah, I, I I was fortunate. I think I you know basically grew up with uh, Nintendo and a computer in my room, and so I I split my time evenly between both of them. Nice, that's great. Do you remember the first time you got on AOL? Yep, fifth grade. My handle then was Leplik, like L E P L I K. Thought that was so cool uh, because I'm short. People used to call me the, the little leprechaun. And so fifth grade me thought that name was really cool. My parents were on vacation. They were vehemently against the internet, even though they had no idea what the internet was. My aunt was watching over us. And uh, my parents, in their great wisdom, left a whole bunch of uh, blank checks. And we had decided, hey, we'll use one of those blank checks to... Uh, sign up for AOL service while the parents are, are away. So my older brother and sister, uh, you know, obviously took first pass. When my parents got back, they were really pissed off, but I guess they didn't know how to cancel it. So we, uh, <laughs> you know, the cat was out of the bag. And, uh, you know, like uh, that, was, that was the beginning for sure. Awesome. Did you have one phone line or two phone lines? Two phone lines. Yeah, my parents had a business. And so the second phone line, I think, from then on was uh, dedicated to AOL for sure. That was certainly key at the time. Yeah, luckily. I remember later later in life getting screamed at by my parents because we had one, one phone line at a, at a house we were in. And uh, I was hogging it all day. And like one of my parents was out and needed to talk to us and couldn't get through. Funny the things you remember. I think we've all been screamed at by our parents for that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So how did you find the scene? So I think there's like two iconic uh, finding the scene moments, right? One is you're in a public chat room somewhere and someone scrolls something, right? Like some macro, usually like the middle finger famous macro or something like that. And you're like, cool. Uh, how did that happen? So it was either that or I got punted offline and it was like, well, how do, how do I do that? You know, and so then you just ask around, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember like who it was or, or how, but I, I know it was one of those two things for sure. Nice. And do you remember like what some of the first programs you used were? Yeah, FedEx 2.5, I guess, or something like that. I was thinking about like, okay, you know, how do I, how do I use this? And then some, some dude told me to decompile it. And here I am on Windows 3.1. I don't have VB3. Someone sends me over AOL email, you know, like all of the tools needed to decompile this new fate program that I just received. And I remember doing that and it cascading hundreds of forms, uh, like VB3 forms everywhere. And I like, noped. I was like, nope. And, uh, you know, 
didn't didn't really touch it for a while after that. <laughs> but then you came back to it. I did. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell me about that? Yeah, it was weird. Uh, so was Windows Windows 3.1's gone. Now we're in the new era of, of Windows 95 and VB4. And I was in one of the like prog channels, you know, somewhere and, and, you know, messing around with like different progies or, or whatever. And someone asked like, how do, how do I use VV? And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? You know, you use it like any other prog, you know, you load it up and you click some buttons and they're like, okay, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I need to go and figure out, oh, oh yeah, I think I remember that VV3 thing. Like how hard, how hard could it be? And so... That's kind of how I got into it. No real reason other than, you know, how, how hard could it be? Right. And then how hard was it? Uh, well, I think there's like different classes of, of difficulty, right? Like when you take someone else's code and you decompile it or something like that, and, you know, maybe use someone else's chat send function to, uh, you know, like send, send some text to, to a room, you know, like that, that's, for me, that wasn't so hard, right? The, the hard part was, well, you know, how do you, make, how do you make your own chat send function? You know, I was really very fascinated with the mechanics of the how um, versus, you know, the, the end product, uh, if you will. Like, like, how does this actually work? Like, I don't know if you remember in the, in the early days, like right when AOL was, AOL was adding rich text uh, to, to the chat rooms, you could, you could create a lagger uh, do you remember laggers? Uh, yeah, well, I, I didn't know about them at the time, but I learned about them recently, and uh, they're they're pretty crazy. Yeah, and so I was like so curious, like how how the hell does a lagger work, right? And so, anyway, like that 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 was the interesting part to me was solving solving the puzzle of of how how does this actually work at the end of the day. Um, and so, yeah, like getting into it was super simple. And then obviously you can, you know, do anything. It's a, it's a computer. And so, you know, finding out how it's done uh, was, was the exciting part. And that's a lot more difficult. Nice. Did you collaborate with anybody? Yeah. You know, there, there was like a little click of, of people, I think. You know, the main room I hung out in was VB4, I think, for a very long time, private room VB4. And a lot of people came and went from that place. Uh, but mainly there was people like Ra and Ashley and Igneous and Mr. Chichis and uh, a whole bunch of people. Those are the ones, Ghost, uh, those are the ones that come to the to the top of mind. And then there was like the famous scene people that you kind of heard about, but you didn't really know where where they hung out. Dolan and, you know, Doss and, you know, those people. And so, yeah, it was really interesting to, to kind of like have, have the people you hung out with and then have the people that are quote unquote, you know, known and kind of like pushing the, the frontier of this stuff or, you know, being called hackers or whatever. Wait, are you saying that they also hung out in the same chat room as other people? They weren't like in your crew or whatever, your buddies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was weird to to see that. Even today, there's two progs that like really bring you back, right? It's like AOL Hell or or Fadex, you know, one of those two. If you were in the AOL scene around that time, like you kind of know of those two, you know. And then there's like other ones that came later, like MIB or or whatever that you know. I think popularized the 
playing a little snippet of sound as your as your prog loaded, right? Yeah, everybody, everybody had a sweet song. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned DOS. Are you talking about like the the guy that made the DOS thirty two the bass file? Yeah, yeah, and then made the first OCX for chat comms, right? And I remember uh, loading that for the first time, and then like not realizing how how to use it inside of VB for the longest time. And then I was like, oh, you double click on this, you know, thing that's not shown on your form, and that's how you start programming the the CCOM. So yeah, he was uh, definitely a big inspiration for me uh, because you could always look at his code and a know that it worked and b like use it as a foundation for building whatever you had in your mind to build, right? Did he release his, his OCX code? You know, I, I don't know how I got the OCX. I want to say any VB program, like, you know, brings it along with it, uh, brings the OCX along with it. And so importing an OCX from another VB program at the time was straightforward. So maybe I did it that way. Uh, okay. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily remember how. And you know, like at that time, I think this was really the frontier, at least for me, uh, thinking back, like the frontier of open source programming and and sharing and you know, like uh, uh, yeah, like like code sharing. I mean, what was really cool about the scene then was you come up with some novel idea or you know some new function or some new button on your form or whatever and then not only do you like flex and and show it in the chat room but then you also like along with that send the code so that other people can innovate to me this like bass files and and sharing them you know was the beginning of my long love for open source programming which is still what i spend a lot of my time doing today awesome so it kind of laid the foundation yeah once you got the bass files and started screwing around, did you release any programs or bass files of your own? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the ways we met is actually you found one of my bass files that I actually released. Uh, I made I made a whole bunch of different stuff from, you know, generic like Fadex clones to, you know, purpose built uh, stuff. I you know when CComs came out you know, made MP3 players and I made faders and what's it called? Uh, AIM came out and made multi-account AIM programs and built spammers and name collectors. And then what's funny is after you have your AIM collector, I'm sorry, your uh, screen name collector, you know, crawling all of the public rooms all night, you know, you collect hundreds of thousands of names and then you have to do things like, well, how do you dedupe such a large list? you know, on such a low powered machines like we had, you know, then. And so it, you know, takes you into computer science fundamentals pretty quickly, right? Like once, once you have challenges that extend outside of the scope of sending some text to random windows on a, on a windows PC. Oh, that's really interesting. You had to think about efficiency of the code at that point. Yeah. It's funny to read the you sent me the my my bass file and actually like the first thing I did was open it up and start reading through the code and I'm like, oh my God. You know, not remembering I was twelve uh when I wrote it, but like <laughs> you know, like uh wow, you know, like super 
super embarrassed, found some typos, definitely found some bugs, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, I, I, I wish I knew then what I know now could have done could have done a lot better. <laughs> it's so true. But if you think about it, like, even like a junior developer, right, that joins an organization, and you look at their code, and you're like, wow, this is really bad. But if you I mean, if you're looking back to your your old um, dot bass file, right? I mean, everybody starts somewhere, right? <laughs> true. True. And, you know, like uh, taste, taste changes and grows and, you know, like people evolve and, you know, I'm still like, I, I'm still embarrassed by the code I wrote last week. So, you know, like, I think that's a, a constant struggle, you know, for anyone who's writing something is it makes so much sense at the time that you wrote it. And then, you know, with some distance, then you're like, oh, I could have done X, Y, and Z better. That's so true. Yeah, I go through my own GitHub repository and I'm like, wow, that's really not good code. Yeah. Cool. So the different things, you said you made some CCOMs, uh, the name collectors and the spammer. So was it, was it point of the name collectors to do the spamming? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the whole like dark side of all of, all of this, right? Like where, you know, phishing uh, was a big thing cracking like cool names you know some of the early like tame spamming i did was uh like so one thing that's that's common about about operator accounts on aol is that even if you have your ims off then an operator can im you back you know like whereas if your friends try to im you it will say you know like this person has uh, ims disabled or something but if you send a host a, a message uh then they can respond so one of the first collectors I built was to spam just like some random message to every single person on that list to try to find operator accounts. And, you know, like I didn't have, I'm like a dog chasing a car. Like I had no idea, you know, what I was going to do uh, once I found one of these accounts, but I found a few. Um, but yeah, like that, that was the intro to that. And then obviously then it's make a weird name, usually under someone else's master account. And, you know, spam out like, hey, uh, something's wrong with your password, respond with your password. And, uh, you know, so uh, for a long time, I I made stuff to do, you know, to do stuff like that, basically. And so was just for the fun of writing your own instead of using other people's? For me, it's how, how is it actually done? You know, a lot of the code that I wrote was just to see if I could actually do it. Did you release any of your programs? Uh... I don't, I don't know. I remember, I want to say yes, but like who, who knew of, of them and were they used by anyone other than me or not? I don't, I don't know. Um, but you know, most of the stuff I built for myself and to, to show, you know, to show how to do something or, or something like that. If, if I did release anything, it was like in, you know, contained basically to the VB4 room. Oh, okay. But somehow the bass file made it, right, to 2022. So I'm wondering if anything else made it to 2022. I'm hoping. Like, that would be cool. Uh, I remember, like, the last program I worked on was called Keeb's Cookies. That was mostly an exercise in, like, how to do interesting interfaces or iFaces, as we called them then, mixing in transparency and pictures and whatnot, like, inspired by those old cracking progs, you know, like, you download some proprietary software and there's a crack that comes along with it, like, with cool music and whatnot. And what was 
also interesting about those cracks is the the shape of the program on your desktop, you know, was was typically not the, you know, a box. It was like some weird shape or something like that. Uh, yeah, my last like AOL focused program was was exploring, you know, how to how to do that. And what version of EB was that in? Six, I want to say. Yeah. I remember the, the when VB7 was released and thinking, oh man, this is like so foreign from VB6 or uh, maybe it was VB5 to VB6 or something like that. I think it was VB6 to VB7. And so, yeah, like my, my journey with VB ends, uh, I think in VB6. Interesting. I didn't know there was a Visual Basic 7. Did, did it go from... I think it went from VB6 to VB7 and then that was renamed to like VB.net. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Because I remember... I was programming VB6 and then like came back years later. I'm like, what, what is this .NET thing? And I'm like, where's VB6? You know? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to use .NET. Yeah. Like, I want to use VB6. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, uh, so yeah. Um, I remember trying to buy VB5 and asking like, uh, you know, the person at Best Buy or whatever, like, this says VB5 Education Edition, and this other one's Pro Edition, and it's like $200 difference in price. And I was like, if I make an EXE on the education version, can I send it to people and can they use it? And the poor like Best Buy person's like, I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Um, <laughs> so so uh, anyway. That's funny. At least they didn't make up an answer. That, that's always the worst when the person at Best Buy makes up one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Anyway. So Keeb's Cookies, the I do I do remember the crackers, and they were some of the most phenomenal graphics I'd ever seen. It'd be like an intro animation or something to the cracker, and they'd have super sweet like MIDI music in the background, and those were so cool. And, and the EXE was always so small. I was like, how did you do that? <laughs> yeah. Like that's an instant nostalgia hit is to turn on some chip tunes on Spotify or something like that or on YouTube and you're like, yeah, okay, this this uh this takes me back for sure. Some of the stuff I did, I have like a label and then you hover over the label and it changes color to like make like a button and stuff like that. Do you remember what kind of stuff you were doing with Keeps Cookies? So the idea was like a circle, right? So it was like a big chocolate chip cookie or something like that, and then different labels on the cookie, uh, you know, would load up. At that time, it was cool to, you know, not have like a file menu, but to have a label which loaded a menu, you know, that you could then select or something like that. And so the concept was built around that, like click different parts of the cookie and you get different functions inside of the app. And the the thing that was cool was it was a circle instead of a square, basically. Interesting. Was the idea at all derived from the 1995 movie Hackers with uh, the Cookie Monster virus? No. <laughs> no, I don't think I watched the Hackers movie until I was older, actually. It came from, you know, there was a girl had decided to call me her Keebler. And then she's like, oh, that's too long. So then, you know, she called me Keeb for short. And that's like where the name came from. And then Keeps Cookies was like a take on Keebler Cookies, which is a brand of cookies in the in the U.S. Those were very good cookies. Yeah, yeah. And so to this day, I like name machines. Like one of my machine names is like Treehouse or something. It's a an homage to those days. And I've like my handle anywhere has been Keeb, like basically forever since 
fifth grades after the the Leplick, uh, uh scenario. Like I quickly uh, fixed that. Interesting. It's so funny. So she's like, I don't feel like typing Keebler all the time. We'll, we'll just make it Keeb. And you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, fu- funny how like s- small moments like that. I still remember I was like out on the playground in the jungle gym uh, where that happened. Oh, it was it was in real life. It, was, it wasn't in chat room. Okay. No, no, it was in real life. Yeah, like a, a schoolmate of mine. It's funny how little moments like that like have such a... I don't know, profound impact. Yeah, definitely. So with the spamming, you said it started out where it was kind of more innocent and then did it turn into something else? Yeah. I mean, high school was interesting. Two things, you know, seventh, eighth grade into high school was the rise of pornography on the internet for sure. And so I had a CD burner uh, really, really young. <laughs> and so like, you know, you download porn or whatever, and then put it on a CD and sell those at school. I thought that was better than selling drugs. Still wanted to be an entrepreneur, but not on the drug side. And so one of my friends and I had a little cabal going of either music or porn stuff. And so, and sometimes people would ask for like AOL accounts or something like that. And I would sell that to them, you know, like cracked AOL accounts or whatever. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I quickly built a little enterprise, some of these programs that I had built for sure. You know, a lot of this doesn't hold a candle to some of the stuff that some of my friends did, you know, like sniffing out public SMTP gateways so that they could, you know, affiliate marketing was big, then getting people to sign up and click on, you know, links for boner pills or, or whatever, you know, and they, they were making like real money doing that. You know, I was making lunch money um, while they were making real money. And so uh, I, I was really at the periphery of all of this, but certainly saw it all happening uh, for sure. Interesting. So you saw your friends doing some of that. And then was that just too much risk for you or what? I remember the first time I made an actual phishing website. So AOL used to have this ability to make websites within the AOL UI. And one of the things you could do was copy their their sign up page or whatever and when you click like the submit button instead of it you know like going to a different page or something like that you could have it in the background like you could construct a mail to link so that it actually sent the email behind the window without like anyone noticing and so you know you could do password phishing and you could do credit card uh, phishing that way really easily. If you had enough names and there was not enough education at the time uh, where people could, you could get people to go to that page, they would enter their details and you, you know, you would get their info. And so one thing that's true about me is I always tell people like what I'm doing and what's going on. And I tend to tell on myself a lot. So one day I was talking to my dad and I was telling my dad like, Hey, you know, like I built this thing. I mean, my friends are building this thing and, you know, it's like really easy to get people's credit card information this way. And he was like, well, it's cool that you know how to do that, but you're not like actually doing that. Right. And I was like, uh, <laughs> uh... <laughs> and so, you know, like I knew it was wrong the whole time, but like just being confronted with it that way and having to vocalize it, I think that was kind of the end of my, it, to me, there's a line between getting someone's credit card information. And I didn't ever actually like buy anything with it or anything like that. It was cool to have them. There was a line between that and getting a master account on AOL to go and make someone else's account. I I don't know 
what that line is or how I rationalize that away. But most of the time I did it because I, I wanted to see how it worked. That was kind of like the beginning and end of that, really, I think. Interesting. So can we talk about this creating a website with AOL UI? I'm really interested in, in this. I've never, I've never <laughs> heard of it. So is it like... Oh, really? Yeah. So wait, is it hosted at AOL? Yes. Is it a fully qualified domain name with like a path specifically for you? Is it HTML or is it something else? I have a million questions. Yeah, like the details are, you know, they're there, but they're they're hazy. Like I have uh, some memories about it. So this is like, I want to say it's before the rise of like AltaVista and GeoCities and, and all of that stuff. So AOL had like a profile system, right? Uh, where, you know, everyone had a profile or you everyone could have a profile and you could right click on someone's name and you could see their profile. As an aside, one of the cool things to do was adding fields to your profile or something like that. And we can talk about that. Like fields that shouldn't be there? Like extra fields? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's how, you know, people learned about shift enter, you know, like in a normal text box, if you press shift enter, then that will create a new line in the same way that if you have like an enter button in a multi-text file or multi-text box, it would create a new line. So shift enter does the same thing. And so then you could, you know, shift enter and make another field. Anyway, so then there was a link like from your profile to a web page, basically, that you could author inside of the AOL app. And then there was a way to link to it. I don't really remember how to link to it, like how you link to it, what the domain name it was in, you know, if it was published to the web or not, or if it was just published, you know, inside of AOL or, or whatever. But yeah, like, you know, back then, animated images and really thick section separators and uh, some sound if you could have it and uh, pop-up boxes and shit. You know, that was like all of the features. Those were all like basics that you needed on your website. Was it like a WYSIWYG editor? Yeah, it was drag and drop. I want to say it came in like AOL 4, like along with their, you know, rich text, you know, when you could start adding colors to your text and stuff like that. Okay. Why would you have someone sign in if you're already on AOL? Like, what would they be signing into? Like, what, what is the legitimate reason for that? You, you would send them a message and be like, hey, there's a problem with your account. Uh, you know, you got to come here and enter your password to verify it's you. Or, you know, hey, there's a problem with billing. You got to come here and enter your billing information again to make sure that you continue to have access to, to AOL or whatever, right? Right. But, but you, know, you said you could copy their signup page, right? So like, what, where would you get the signup page to copy? Yeah, yeah, like AOL's signup page. You could copy it and then, you know, just instead of having it submit to AOL, you could have it as a mail to link that would just mail to with all of the form data. And it would send an email like to whoever, to me or to another account or whatever. So that code, the login page, so is that like from a web page? You would just copy that and then paste it in to, to the WYSIWYG? But then the mail to, I thought mail to would just like open up like a, a compose email or something and not actually send it. But you're saying that there was a way to make it actually send it? Yes. Huh. Yes, I wonder if this was like generating like FDO code or something on... No, it was like a it was like a button, like a simple mail to, but you could add in, you know, like mail to email address, question mark, subject, you know, equals whatever, and it would fill out the subject and message equals whatever, and it would fill out the message. And then there was like an ampersand send or something like that, where it would actually send it. I wonder if that's part of like the RFC. It's definitely not. 
it's 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 definitely not uh, but like i think it's because it was all integrated into aol and there was like clearly a walled garden aspect here like for some reason their mail client just sent it wow why would you do that i, I wonder what they were thinking that's crazy so could you see the raw html under it or you could modify like a specific button to do something like a mail to, but you couldn't see the rest of it. Uh, you know, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm still, this is the part where like, I just have flashes of like doing some WYSIWYG stuff. And I'm thinking like, okay, well, like, how did you do marquee text? Did you actually enter the marquee tag or, or, you know, did, did you do that in the WYSIWYG thing? I, I don't remember. Interesting. I'm sure somebody will let us know and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. There's probably a video on it or something. We, we, we could probably guess all day, but um, that sounds really interesting. I certainly remember using things like Blink uh, when I was doing regular HTML programming and I thought that was great, but I think I tried it recently and it like, totally didn't work. And I was like, what happened to Blink? <laughs> yeah, now you got to do some JavaScript con- concoction to do that, right? Or maybe there's some CSS you know, animation trick you could do to make that happen. I don't know. Right. Why did you end up leaving AOL? I don't know. Um, so one of the last projects I worked on, you know, like Keeps Cookies and an MP3 player. And the cool thing about the MP3 player that I made was that it worked in any, in any window, um, not just the AOL window. So it was like a CCOM that you could make that you could make work in any text editor. And so one of the first things that I did was use it in IRC, you know, like trying to bring the the AOL culture to some of the IRC channels that I was in. How was that received? That annoyed the shit out of people. That's so funny. They were like, yeah, don't, don't, don't bring that shit here. You know, like, don't do that. (laughs) Uh, And so, but I was like, hey, you know, like I can control my little music player from here. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to see that shit. Like, don't, don't do that. Um, Send yourself system messages or something like that if, if you if you want to do that. That's really funny. Yeah. And I, I actually, for college credit, was taking a nighttime VB programming class, uh, which was hilarious because, you know, like I'm in there at 14 years old or 15 years old with a whole bunch of adults in their 30s. And they're looking at me like, what the hell is this kid doing here? But they quickly like found out I knew what I was talking about. And actually like the teacher had me, you know, helping him teach the class and like helping the other people in the class. And so my final project and everyone's final project was to make something, you know, using all of the stuff that you uh, learn in class. And um, I showed the uh, MP3 player that I made that could work anywhere. And uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the last real VB, VB project, actually, in particular, and the last like AOL program, or I should say AOL related program that I wrote. So it can work anywhere. Does that mean like you had to find the parent window of like every window that was open on your system, and then just start subclassing everything and constantly checking every single window for the text? And then I go, what interval? It was a little bit different, but but similar concepts. So when the program loaded, it would be like pick the window. And I didn't know how to like click on a button and then click on the, the, the text box and have it do it that way. So what I ended up doing 
was create a key combination. That key combination was Alt-Enter. And so if you pressed Alt-Enter with the form highlighted with your mouse over the text box that you wanted to use, then that would be the window where it would pull the text to be the CCOM, basically. And so like I did all of the local programming in Notepad, right? So I would load the program, I'd load Notepad, I'd, hi- I'd, I'd highlight the thing, I'd, I'd mouse over the Notepad window and I'd Alt-Enter and then I could enter CCOM commands inside of Notepad and it would, you know, read it and then it would erase it and then put in the response. You know, if I'm like, play Metallica, then it would, you know, you know, say like, okay, here's your 15 Metallica songs, now enter a number, you know, for the song that you want to play. And then, you know, you'd hit three and it'd play, you know, whatever Metallica song number three was. And the whole UI was basically inside of Notepad at this point, you know, and it would handle it all, you know, it would, uh, as you started to type, it would remove, remove the other stuff. And it would, you know, as soon as you hit enter, that was the key, that was a cue to, uh, you know, read whatever your input was. That's pretty cool. So it's kind of like you had your own personal shell anywhere and with a bunch of like alias functions, like a bash alias, right? But it could be in any window. Exactly. And what was funny, you know, is, is you start to think about this and, and you said the magic word shell, right? And so after I was done with VB class, I took intro to, to Linux, you know, at another night class at the local college. And um, I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, this is a lot like CCOMs look a lot like all of these bash commands that I'm starting to learn. And so, you know, the, the motion from, you know, using a CCOM to using a shell was really fluid for me. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Because I mean, like DOS, you know, you're just kind of calling binaries and stuff with a few arguments, but like the actual CCOM calling a function, it's uh, it's a little bit different. So, And something about having music playing versus, you know, just some text, you know, I think made it, I don't know, made it, made it interesting, made it, made it more interesting. So you got some of these credits and this is like when you were in high school or what? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. When I was in grade school. Wow. So how did how did your did your parents just recognize that you had talent and descent and sent you, or did you ask for it, or how did you end up there? I asked for it. My parents owned a business growing up, and they had a rule basically. They're like, "Listen, you're either gonna be busy working at our business, and they worked in construction, and for me, you know, like uh, spending the time outside doing shit." you know, like working on trucks or pulling weeds or landscaping or whatever was like the worst idea ever. So they're like, you can either do that or you're going to find a way to keep yourself busy. And so programming was definitely one of those things. And, um, you know, they said that the, the, if you choose it, you know, we'll fund it basically as long as you're passionate about it. And so, yeah, I told them I want to take a programming class at the local college. And they said, if you can get into it, then great. And so I did. That's really cool. Do do you apply that to your own kids too, or or not? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I I give my kids a lot of agency uh, in what they do with their day. But the thing that the twist that I added is there's stuff that you have to do, and there's stuff that you want to do, and the stuff that you want to do can only happen after you do the stuff that you have to do, like chores and and whatnot. And so. You know, building building that structure, I think, uh, is really helpful. It gets everyone what they want, you know, like got to do homework. And as a result of doing homework, you get good grades. And then, you know, it's not up to me to tell you what you have to do after, you know, after you do the things that you have to do, like get good grades, right? So 
that's the give and take. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, we call it first things first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You took the classes at the colleges, and did you do programming in high school too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Programming's been something I've done basically ever since I've picked it up. I've not, I've not let it go. It's been an ever-present part of my life. I, uh, I've always been programming, I guess, uh, since I started. What programs, like what kind of languages did you work with? You know, after you graduated and you got into the, the real world, like what was what was the first? I guess when you when you first kind of became like a, a real developer. I want to say real developer. I mean like <laughs> a, an actual company. Yeah. Um, did it totally change like the way that you were doing stuff? And you're like, well, like everything I know is does not work the same way now that I work at a company. Mm. So af after I. You know, after AOL, I kind of branched out in two places. One was IRC and in particular DeviantArt and that kind of community. And then the other was I spent a lot of time on a website called PHP Freaks and, uh, you know, doing the tradition now what we call the traditional LAMP stack, you know, Linux, Apache, MySQL and PHP and building websites. This was, you know, what I spent most of high school doing um, was building like messing with HTML, messing with CSS, messing with PHP, you know, learning how to deploy all of this, deploy my own stack and, uh, you know, make different programs there or different utilities there. And then, you know, it helped people who were on that journey also on a forum called uh, PHP Freaks. And so, uh, yeah, like, that that was that was the post AOL and then um, that all of that work helped me get my first or I, I should say all of that uh, activity helped me get my first uh, programming job uh, or I should say my first job I, I don't think I've ever been hired as a developer uh, by any company um, but. Uh, I've developed, <laughs> you know, I've written codes, uh, you know, at every company I've worked at, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so you said you were never hired for an actual develop for an actual developer role, but you've done lots of programming in those roles. Um, so what, yeah. what, what kind of yeah. work did you end up going into? So I, I feel like I have one of the coolest jobs uh, in the world. The title is business development, but... Really what you do is you think about how to combine two technologies together uh, to build something that's, you know, more than the sum of its parts. That's the job. Um, and so along with that, you know, there's a lot of prototyping. There's a lot of uh, integration work. There's a lot of, you know, writing code to bring two products together and then trying to envision what and how uh, that might be useful to the overlap of Venn diagram of, of the two user communities. So can you give some examples? So when I first start, started doing this uh, was at a company called Docker, which is an open source containerization development tool. And Docker is really interesting because it allows you to take your app and all of its dependencies on a Linux machine package it up as a, as a container and then ship those containers around to different places, you know, whether it's on your laptop, whether it's on a local VM 
or a VM running in a cloud, you know, you, you kind of solve the problem of works on my machine, but doesn't work when I'm deploying it, right? And that, w- that was the worst for so many years for system administrators. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, uh, what's cool about Go, the programming language, is you get, you know, a static binary that you can move around and stuff like that. But uh, containers and, and, and whatnot, you know, allow you to do that for any programming language, for any stack, for, for, for stuff like that. So um, this was my first uh, open source job. It was my first time in this role of running business development uh, for a company. And so my mandate there was two things. One, anyone and everyone who was building tooling around Docker you know, to know them, to make sure that uh, their experience using our tool was a good one. And, you know, they had an outlet to, you know, ask any questions and stuff like that. Uh, A lot of the community building then happened on IRC and on GitHub. And so, you know, for the early days of of Docker, this was around 2013, any and all Docker-related projects I knew about, I had a personal relationship with the people who were who were writing them. And um, so that there was that part. And then, you know, you work with the big companies who are looking at technology like this, because as you said, like it used to be a huge problem that application portability was you know, something that that was really hard. And so, you know, big companies like Microsoft and IBM and, you know, Red Hat and whatever, you know, were, were seeing this momentum that we had built as a company and um, were looking at investing in the, the project. And so the question was how, you know, how do, how do they contribute to the open source? How do they, you know, productize this? How do they, you know, use this technology in a way that makes sense to their to their customer base or to their user base. And so, uh, yeah, the job is to, to, to do that, you know, like combine the best of both. And, and one of the cool things that we did was, uh, you know, get Microsoft to bring container technology to windows. And so that same idea of application portability went from the Linux world to the windows world. And now, you know, even though you can't run a Linux, well, you can with WSL, but, you know, you can't port a Linux binary to Windows and run it natively on Windows. Um, you know, you can you can build a .NET app and run it on both, etc. Et using using uh, container technology to do that. And that that was uh, that was an example of uh, of the type of stuff you know that that biz dev people can can do. That's really cool. So yeah, when Docker first came out. I'm going to ask you a history question because I don't know the answer. But was it just like, because I mean, it, it came from LXC, right? And then there was Docker. But was there a place to run these containers, like an enterprise environment before like Kubernetes and OpenShift and all that? Because I kind of, was it, wasn't it it just, just kind of like Docker for a while? And then, and then the enterprise stuff came? What happened? <laughs> Yeah, so so I'll tell a bit of the the Docker origin story. Okay, so before Docker was Docker, there was a company called Dot Cloud, and Dot Cloud was a platform as a service, and its main competitor at the time was uh, Heroku. What was cool about Heroku and about Dot Cloud was you had your code. Uh, in Heroku's case, it was uh, constrained to Ruby at the time. You had your Ruby code, 
and you could commit it to a repository and then Heroku would take care of the rest. It would deploy it for you. It would connect it for you. It would make sure that it was always available. It would uh, uh, page you if there was a problem. Basically was you as a developer could focus on your app and them as the experts in deploying could focus on you know the, the, the runtime side of things, right? And so uh, dot .cloud went through Y Combinator and uh, the, the differentiation between dot .cloud and Heroku was uh, that you could do you know, more languages and, and, and more integrations. So you weren't just stuck in Rails, you were, you know, you could bring your PHP along or you could bring your Python uh, apps along or, you know, you could run uh, specific instances of databases or, or whatnot. And so uh, we were using, you know, container technology uh, to power the platform. Um, so fast forward to the, you know, the, the infamous demo of the first version of Docker at, at a lightning talk at PyCon in March of 2013 um, by Solomon Hikes, the, the, the founder. You know, he, there he showed a version of Docker that was uh, programmed in Python that could basically, you know, Docker run some containerized app. And, uh, you know, as I say, the rest, the rest is history. I, I entered about six weeks after that infamous demo. I, you know, was on IRC. I was talking to everyone on the IRC channel then. And I found out because Solomon reached out to me that A, there was a company behind this project and B, they were in San Francisco and I lived right nearby. And I was like, cool, I'm, I'm coming to visit you guys next week uh, because I'm so passionate and excited uh, about this project. And so, um, you know, I, I joined probably six weeks after that. To get to your question, at that time, uh, no, there wasn't any Kubernetes. Kubernetes was announced at the first uh, DockerCon in 2014. There wasn't an OpenShift. OpenShift didn't come till much later. You know, really there was a message. There was a Docker project and there was the evangelism of the developer community around, around this new thing, basically. And so, yeah, you just use Docker naked, standalone to do all of this. All of the first demos were create a little app, uh, run it here locally on my uh, development environment, push it to something like a DigitalOcean or an AWS EC2 instance, install Docker over there and, and run it. Interesting. Okay. And so then Kubernetes came out and yeah, OpenShift later. I don't know. It's, I mentioned open source and do you remember OpenStack at all? Yeah, definitely. So OpenStack was what we thought was going to be the first big thing for Docker. Like, oh man, if we can integrate with OpenStack and, you know, in the same way that you uh, manage your VMs from within OpenStack, if you could manage your apps and we could create an app primitive uh, in there, um, then, you know, we're going we're gonna to be set up for success. And then the other thing, if we could establish a relationship with Red Hat to remove the objection of, uh, you know, cool tech, but can't actually run it in production because Red Hat won't support it, that that would be two major blockers to adoption for the types of customers that would actually pay as opposed to users who would get excited about using it. And so those were the first two relationships that I built. Uh, and, you know, Docker was part of one of the headline features of RHEL 7 when, when Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7 was uh, announced. And uh, a lot of my early days were spent in Hong Kong at uh, the, you know, the OpenStack conference 
in Hong Kong, spent like a month there for that. So that was fun. But, you know, OpenStack basically died and we were wrong about that. Uh, but the concept of app on, you know, VM environments of cloud environments uh, certainly kicked off. And now you have AWS services that, you know, host uh, either your containers or they have AKS like their Kubernetes, bring your, bring your own app and run on their Kubernetes uh, hosted thing or Google has GKE. Uh, Rackspace had a project uh, called Karina, which did the same thing, uh, you know, and Azure has, has something similar as well. Interesting. Yeah, except OpenStack, I was in the OpenStack realm for I used to build out OpenStack clouds and um, I ended up going to a different, different job and super sad to see OpenStack kind of just give out. I, I, I'm guessing maybe, I don't know the full reason, but I, I'm guessing people, I mean, you have to have your own administrators to, to run a proper OpenStack cloud, right? And you, there, there's a lot of like upfront work and maintenance to run your own OpenStack cloud, right? And uh, I think a lot of people just weren't into that. And it, I don't know, what are your thoughts on it? There's the hater take. Uh, the hater take is it was all vendors and no users. And so, you know, like whenever you have a, a movement like that, you know, things get slow, you kind of lose sight of, you know, what users actually want of solving, you know, actual user problems. And instead it's just vendor politics on the different distros and the different people and pieces coming together. So I think that's definitely part of it. And I think the other part, you know, that's one piece of it that the, the other piece of it is, you know, why run your own cloud when you can just buy one from someone else like Amazon, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I think both of those two things at the same time, kind of, you know, as a fait accompli or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's gotta be a second one a lot. A lot. I think that I'm thinking about it. It's just so easy. And like the amount of services that like Amazon and Google offer versus like, they were always playing catch up with OpenStack, right? Yeah, and there was uh, also cloud.com, which was an OpenStack competitor. And uh, the people who made cloud.com ended up making one of the first container distros and container platforms uh, called uh, Rancher Labs. They ultimately sold their company to Sousa, I think, a year and a half ago or two years ago. What, what do you know about Rancher Labs? Uh, I worked there after I left Docker. I worked there for a year or so, and then I went to go work for MariaDB. And then after MariaDB, I took a, a year and a half or so off, and uh, I started working um, at my current job uh, called Kentic. Nice. Do you want to talk about that at all? Uh, if you want to, yeah. I, we're kind of far away from the AOL topic, but I'll talk about anything <laughs> if you'd like. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, so Kentic is really interesting in that uh, it it is a product that was born uh, and made for the people who run the internet, and it's kind of like going full circle in a way. Um, so the main customers are customers who you know own uh, major backbones, um, you know, or transit, or they you know they sell to service providers who rely on the, the internet for their business to function like ISPs or like uh, gaming companies uh, or like uh, Salesforce or uh, Dropbox or, you know, Box or, you know, any, basically any, any service provider that, that relies on, the, on the, the internet to function, right? And what they do is uh, they monitor all of your internet traffic, 
all of your network traffic. Um, you know, if you have a, an issue uh, with your CDN or you have uh, capacity planning problems or you have, uh, you know, link congestion uh, because of, you know, the way that traffic is flowing through your system, then, you know, the, the technology here will alert you to that fact or let you see that fact and then uh, help you resolve it. And uh, so the company has been alive for seven years. I've worked there since basically uh, a week before the world shut down because of COVID. It's so cool to work for a company that's so foundational to the performance of the internet, internet as a whole. And one of the interesting challenges that I'm working on is how do you bring that same level of visibility to, you know, more on the operator side, more on the developer, you know, uh, site reliability engineer, DevOps sort of crowd. Because if you think about it, a modern application is basically powered by the network, right? And if you have problems on the network, then your application doesn't really function uh, so well. And so... Um, Having some visibility there, I think, is is critical to the success of the reliability of your and reachability of your application at the end of the day. So, yeah, that's uh, that's that's what I'm working on these days. That's super cool. So you could have like if you go like APM, like application performance management, and you have something that's kind of calling home. Right. But you don't want to call home to your direct servers because if there's a problem with a path to your where your data where your actual application is hosted it's going to fail so it's got to be a separate path right maybe to like uh to yeah. servers right and then from there kenta can say there's a problem with the path or something is, there, is that what the idea is or yeah definitely so so there's a couple of things right one is if you think about traditional apm it's amazing it can tell you a lot of things about your application. And in some cases, uh, they can also tell you about the environment in which your application is running. So APM meets, you know, like host, host infrastructure monitoring, right? So you can see, you know, this machine has this much CPU, has this much RAM. These processes are using that much. There's a latency, you know, uh, of, of X amount of milliseconds in this function. This function calls that function. You know, if you have an issue related to a code change, then, you know, tools like New Relic or Datadog can point you to the line of code that's, that's being affected, right? Or if you've instrumented with logs and tracing, then tools like Honeycomb or, or Splunk um, or Elastic can, can, you know, or Grafana can, can point you to you know, traces that are taking too long or, or something like that. So there's a couple of, of pitfalls to this, right? One is you're only as good as the, 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 the visibility that you have is only as good as the, as, as the servers that you have instrumented, right? So like if you have uh, your app instrumented on server A, but you don't have it on server B, then you're blind on server B, right? Uh, but what happens if, you know, you have a server B that uh, can't be instrumented because it's not hosted by you, uh, it's hosted by someone else? Or say there's a hop between you and server B. Um, so like that, the, the first example is like, say I'm using hosted Amazon RDS as a database as opposed to running my own Postgres, right? on server B. Or what if you have like a load balancer, like a ingress controller or, uh, you know, a typical load balancer that you don't want instrumented uh, for whatever reason uh, between server A and server B, right? Well, in traditional APM, you would see server A and server B are up and green, you know, like, cause the servers are up, but may maybe you make a change to the load balancer that makes it so that A can no longer route to B as an example. 
um, that's a class of problem that if you don't have network visibility, then you're not going to be able to, you know, understand that a change was made to the load balancer. And now, even though A and B appear to be up, they can't actually talk together. So your application doesn't actually function. Um, so you may notice that in terms of like a drop off in users or a rise in errors or, you know, some other means. But then you have to investigate why that's happening. Whereas if you just use something like network monitoring, then you could actually see uh, that this link is now broken. Yeah, is that with like, so I mean, there's like synthetic testing. Is that like you have like agents or something, uh, server side that make calls? Because I think like Datadog has like a TCP connect test or something like that, where you would tell it to check is this port open, right? I've got a database server. But does it go a step further than that? Yeah, so synthetic tests are great for a certain class of problem, right? So there's two types, really, of synthetic tests. One is reachability, you know, like, can, can my app get reached? Is it reachable from, you know, local? Is it reachable from outside of local, you know, from the internet? Um, and then what is the performance of that if I'm using it in San Francisco versus London versus South Africa versus Australia, right? Like, if you... If you're a company that cares about user experience, then you're likely going to, you know, have some of your assets on a CDN. Or if you're a company like Facebook, you know, you want to have local, local uh, versions of your app running in all of those places so that latency is is low, right? And so part of part of this is understanding the reliability of your connection, um, you know, from location A to endpoint B. And then there's the usability side of, of things, right? Which is, okay, I, you know, I can reach my application and performance is okay from there, but can I log in? Can I, you know, if I'm an e-commerce site, can I add stuff to the shopping cart? And can I check out from the shopping cart using some dummy data or something like that, right? Um, and so one is like a more transactional thing, what, what the industry calls a transaction test, where you, you know, go through a, a series of steps uh, and the other is more of like, is my application reachable? And what's missing there is all of the interconnected dependencies, right? Like, uh, like say a modern application uh, is built out of a number of microservices, right? So can all of the microservices talk to each other? Can your app talk to the API gateway? Can your, you know, uh, so so where where Datadog falls down is you know a, a, across those scenarios. You know, they, they have answers to some of it, but not all of it. Yeah, the last I checked their synthetic tests, you could like only run from other AWS data centers, which isn't super helpful in some scenarios. Um, so you want to be able to deploy those, you know, wherever you want to, right? But um, yeah. like if, it, yeah. if an upstream uh, internet provider, let's say Philadelphia, for example, is down, then your customers in Philadelphia can't get to your website. But you wouldn't know that. Exactly. Um, that not to pick on Datadog, but just as an example. Yes, yes, exactly. And so there's there's um, other companies in this space like uh, Catchpoint and Thousand Eyes, which solve again different different levels or different scenarios inside of the ones that I just described. And what's interesting is that the the users of these tools are traditional network engineers, and the the surfacing of this to uh, this class of problem and this type of problem to you know the rest the rest of the A infrastructure team and then to the development team uh, who care about things like reliability and, and all of that, you know, hasn't, hasn't really been as pervasive. 
Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's one of the things that I'm working on now is how to craft a message so that you know people get the the value. And well, a understanding that they're blind without having some some view of what's happening on the network. And actually, a convergence of APM and NPM is is the future of the space. I think. Yeah, definitely. I, I, in another life, I was doing uh, APM with um, App Dynamics and then using Thousand Eyes, and I was using both at the same time uh, to try to keep like yeah. a site up. Uh, and then we hear, oh, the East Coast can't get to the website, and, right? And so when you hear like something like that. Uh, that's all you have to go on is the East Coast can't get to our website. You you just like look at like yeah. you know, look at your tools and figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah. But it, it sucks when you're reactive and, and, and you're being told that as opposed to already knowing it, right? What's cool about Kentic in particular, and then I'll get off the subject, is if you got a question like that, you'd be able to answer it in a second. Like you'd know exactly what what was misconfigured to make sure or sorry, to to know, you know why traffic isn't coming out from the east uh it would be it would be evident you know it's like link congestion it's like uh, my edge router that services you know that is down or uh my peer is down or you know something like that it would be able to tell you instantly yeah well level three is down so yeah whatever yes exactly and so you know it would tell you that and then you know you could either route around it by announcing some changes take level three out of the equation or, you know, whatever you would want to do to mitigate that, right? Uh, or level three is under a DDoS attack. And so, you know, we have to route around it because of that or latency is high or, you know, whatever. That's super cool. Awesome, man. Well, is there anything else you want to cover today? <laughs> you, a- you asked me uh, if my Apple password is really 128 characters. Yes, it is. Oh yeah, I did. What's up with that, man? Is that true? Because you, because like I was looking at your Twitter, you're like complaining about it on Twitter. You're like, ah, oh, I can't believe I had to put in my Apple password, and it's under 20 characters. So it's, I, I noticed this, you know, because <laughs> you put in so many times. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, long passwords are good, right? So yeah, um, but the whole experience of signing up a new device in the Apple ecosystem is really the worst. Like you have to enter the stuff manually a whole bunch of times before it actually works. And so like, I think I counted six times that I had to enter my password from a new device to getting authenticated and as a part of like, you know, the Apple ecosystem. And so when you have a complicated password, it doesn't even matter if it's 128 characters, but if you're using different symbols and, you know, up, uh, shift and uh, symbols and lowercase and uppercase, like, you know, it's it's a bear. Just getting one password installed, you know, requires you to sign into your Apple account, requires you to go into the store and authenticate there. It requires you to then, you know, get one password installed. I don't know. It was it was the worst. So I mean I I can understand a long password for like one for like one password, right? For example, right? Then it'll take a very long time to crack that. That's like your master password. But with like the multi-factor with with Apple, it's pretty good. Uh, I'm just, I'm just so curious. I mean, I, how come you stuck with the 128? Like, I, I don't know how many how many years have you had the 128 password? Uh, I don't know. It's just my default policy when I generate a password with one password to be that long. Oh, one password generated? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I thought you decided on your own. Like, I'm just gonna have 128. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna make up my my 128 password. <laughs> no. Like, and like you had it memorized or something. I'm like, okay. I don't like. I I just. Yeah, like I have it default to 
128 characters for every password. And then if there's a website that complains for that, then I drop down to 64 or 32, basically. That's great. You, I mean, you're going to be the last one of the last accounts to get cracked then, right? I mean, if you think about it, if there's, if there's a database dump. Yeah, but uh, on the places where you get cracked because of a database dump or something like that, it's like because they didn't solve the password or whatever, and they stored it in plain text. And so, you know, that's no matter what my password is in that case, you know, it's going to, it's, it, it, it's out there. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, very true. I don't know. This was fun. Thank you so much for uh, A, inviting me, B, for finding my uh, my code. Like, you know, it, it means a lot. Uh, I used to be able to find it on the internet, and I thought, oh, when I care, I'll download it. And then all of a sudden, it disappeared. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm glad I could find it. And uh, instead of a finder's fee, I'm glad you came on here instead. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Also happy still to do the finder's fee. You know, I'm a man of my word, so... <laughs> All right, man. Well, um, have a good one. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Welcome to cyberspace.